now in this Satipatthana um, Sutta, we will find more inside meditation methods. There are nine what are called channel grounds. Well, in India, it's common to cremate bodies. So a charnel ground is the place where they are cremated. And um, it's not so common these days that they are left there for any length of time before they are cremated, but apparently in those days it was. And um, actually nowadays one can say that they are immediately cremated in that climate. However, it is a very common practice for monks and nuns to um, go to a mortuary and inspect dead bodies, which have not been in any manner or form um, changed to look better. And the idea behind this is, and this is what was done on the channel rounds, the idea is, first of all, to see one's own uh, decay and to see one's own end, not to be so attached to one's own body, but see how it's going to end, because all bodies end the same way. And by seeing that, to arouse what is called some vega in Pali, urgency, to do it now, not to procrastinate, not to hope for the future, that one is, might meditate and practice at some future day after one has taken care of other commitments and difficulties and uh, duties and responsibilities, but to do it now. The Samvega is the one of the um, character consistencies in constituencies in oneself, which is very important, especially in this practice. But it also helps one in one's daily life, not that one should feel stressed uh, and um, pushed, but to be, to finish what one has started and uh, not to have things hanging over one and uh, that one can do maybe at some other time. And in the practice, it's particularly important. And so when one sees dead bodies, one will realize, undoubtedly, that oneself will have a body like that, dead as a doornail, and that one can only practice while one is alive. So these two things, are the um, idea behind this um, meditative endeavor. And uh, it can be extremely helpful. Now, we don't have the chance to um, go to a mortuary and see dead bodies. We don't have a chance to go to a trauma ground and uh, see them lying around there. Such things are not common in the West. So what we have to do is use our imagination. We don't have to use a lot of imagination to
to realize that we're going to die. That doesn't need much imagination. That just needs a bit of um, truthfulness to oneself, looking things in that face the way they really are. But what one looks like when dead, of course, that one might have to have a bit of imagination, and this is what this business here explains. Again, a bhikkhu judges this same body as though he were looking at bodily remains thrown on a charnel ground, one day dead, two days dead, three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter. Thus, this body too is of such a nature, it will be like that if not exempt from that. This body meaning my body. Now, when a body has been dead for a day or two or three, it changes its appearance. It doesn't look as nice as we look now. It starts, it bloats, and it gets dark blue in color sometimes, and uh, all the water elements come out of it. It starts looking extremely ugly. There's a museum in Bangkok at the top floor of the um, a little house on the grounds of the um, of Wat Buen, a very big uh, temple in Bangkok, and on the top floor they have sort of um, like a 3D uh, displays of dead bodies, which they have found in the river and so forth, and have uh, put in formaldehyde to keep them that way, and uh, it's pretty awful. So. Um, it's, um, but it is the way it is. It is looking at the face. This is what this body is going to look like. So the sooner we disassociate ourselves from the ownership of this body, which doesn't mean that we don't eat or drink or look after it. I mean, the thing is around. We've got to keep it, keep it in order. But the ownership of it is our problem because because of that, we are concerned with its um, continual existence, and it will not continually exist. It has that promise from birth, and it won't exist continually. So this is the first one of those nine contemplations, to look at oneself the way that might look after having been dead for three days. Next one is, again, a bhikkhu judges the same body as though he were looking at bodily remains thrown on a charnel ground, being devoured by crows, kites, vultures, dogs, jackals, and the multitudinous kinds of worms. Thus, this body too is of such a nature, it will be like that, it is not exempt from that. Um, maggots get into dead bodies, and uh, it's rather uncertain to see. So um, we can uh, we we have to use our imagination because we haven't got a chance to see that in the India of today it is still possible to see this at times dead bodies thrown around thrown around and uh, being devoured by um, vultures but it isn't that common anymore now between each of these the um, paragraph on insight is being repeated that we look at our own body and bodies externally in the way of arising and vanishing factors. And um, 
which of course here the external body is the dead body that we are maybe able to see but we can refer to that to ourselves and arising well it's here and it vanishes it dies and also a body nothing else except a body the next one is again a bhikkhu judges the same body as though he were looking at bodily remains thrown on a charnel ground, a skeleton, with flesh and blood held together with sinews. Thus, this body too is of such a nature. So here, he's supposed to imagine a skeleton that has flesh and blood on it and is held together with sinews. The next one is a, um, a fleshless skeleton, smeared with blood and held together with sinews. And the next one is without flesh and blood, just the skeleton. Well, again, this applies to the uh, meditative procedure which I uh, mentioned to you yesterday, that one can take all the bits and pieces out of oneself in imagination, put them in front of oneself, and then come to the skeleton and do the same with that. Now, again, a bhikkhu judges the same body as though he were looking at bodily remains thrown in a charnel ground, bones without sinews, scattered in all directions all separate bones, huh? Here a hand bone, there a foot bone, there a thigh bone, there a hip bone, there a back bone, there a rib bone, there a breast bone, there an arm bone, there a shoulder bone, there a neck bone, there a jaw bone, there a tooth bone, and there the skull. And we might have difficulty imagining all those different kinds of bones. I know I would. I'm not quite sure what they look like, all of them. I do know what a skull looks like. And um, so, um, again, we need to refer that to our own existence. Huh? Again, a bhikkhu judges this same body as though he were looking at bodily remains thrown in a charnel ground, bones bleached white, the color of shells. And then bones heaped up, more than a year old. Now that's something that one can easily see in India on the, on the cremation grounds, stacks of bones in a heap. That's not hard to find. Um, after the uh, cremation, bones are left over very often, and uh, then they get some stuff because they need the room for the new cremation. And again, the bhikkhu judges this same body as though he were looking at bodily remains thrown in a charnel ground, bones rotted and crumbled to dust. Thus, this body too is of such a nature, it will be like that, it is not exempt from that. So we have now come to dust. To dust we shall all go, huh? Well, what happens between now and dust, huh? And uh, the uh, unpleasantness of seeing ourselves as a dead body lying there, livid and oozing matter, or being devoured by worms and such things, is to counteract our exaggerated care and attention for our body. The biggest houses you can find in usually in the big cities are the hospitals. And uh, the enormous advances made in the medicine, particularly in um, uh, surgery, is also due to the fact that we just do not wish to die. And while there's no reason to look for death, or to wish death, there's also no reason to reject and resist it. It is the law of nature.
what has been born must die. And it is a very important contemplation subject. And I'd like you all to uh, do this once in a while, um, to think about it, that obviously there's truth to this uh, statement that we're going to die, I'm going to die. How do I feel about it? What do I feel about it? Do I feel that I hope it's going to take a long time still, or um, I really don't want to know about it, I don't want to think about it, it's only a negative thing to think about. Um, um, maybe I can, uh, I can just forget about it and it will just happen in my sleep. Or How do I feel about the whole thing? Or am I totally imbued with the fact that that what has arisen must vanish? And I belong to that category because I underlie the law of nature. I am of the four elements, just as nature is around me. Those trees will not last forever. And so I don't do that. It is a good contemplation subject. And uh, these um, imaginative ideas of what one looks like when did can be helpful if one has a good visual uh, mind. Surely one can think of one's own skeleton. One can think of the um, um, different bones of the uh, crumbling and rotting and the dust part as it then finally goes to dust. But what it all boils down to is the fact that there's only one moment, and that's this one. The past is all gone, and the future is the yet to come. And how much future each one of us has, who knows? We have no idea. But this moment you've got, and if we keep our mind in this moment and live this moment, then this moment has its own beauty and importance and content. It's impossible to be bored with it, it's impossible to be upset by it, to be negative about it, because it is only this moment. And this is one of the important Samvega aspects, the urgency aspect, and then the eventual disengaging, and that can only be done slowly, of this identification process with our own body. So far we've only talked about the body. This has all been the mindfulness on the body. And the Buddha has at other, in other places mentioned that if there's no mindfulness of the body, one cannot come to the deathless. Now, the deathless is another word for Nibbana. He considers the mindfulness of the body of the utmost importance, and this is why we have so many different inside meditations on body, whereas on feeling we won't have that many, and on mind we won't either. It's body which has many. So we've had, actually, as inside meditations, in the first instance, the impermanence, which we can find in our own breath, and then the attention on movement, which also is impermanent, movement is, being, is also impermanent, and that full awareness of movement can also bring us to a very important 
realization, namely that mind and body are two. They interact, but they're certainly not one whole mass. Mind's in charge. Body follows. Then the uh, bits and pieces that we consist of and the elements. And now we have these there, the death. All these are inside meditations which can be done at odd times, particularly when the mind does not wish to become calm, when there's some um, anxiety or upset in the mind or when there's a um, distraction, a lot of distraction in the mind, then these inside meditations can be extremely helpful. Any questions on that? We've come to the end of the body, I think. Yes. Why are hologens so popular? <laughs> Shows, yeah. I don't know. Mutilation. Are they popular? Mm. Yeah. Especially when I was young. It's a long time since I was young. <laughs> 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 I think they're awful. <laughs> Well, I can only imagine, I've never found them attractive, never. Um, I can only imagine that other people's dukkha is easier to bear than one's own. And so there is a, the uh, transference. So one has plenty of dukkha, and uh, if one sees that others have it, then it's theirs, and we don't have to worry about it. Yeah, you're right, you know. And you're you know, spend some time with other people's books. That's my only uh, explanation I can think of. It's, uh, I think, I have never found them interesting. Always like to turn my back on it. <laughs> Anything else on body and its possibilities for meditation? There's one other thing I would like to mention about the inside meditation. Obviously, inside meditation works better when we have become calm. Uh, and so it is, as I said already once, very advisable to do calm first and inside second. However, there are times when inside meditation is called for and As we have heard here, body in oneself and body externally. It's quite useful to go to any of parts of nature around one, leaves, trees, stones, whatever it may be, and see in them the same thing that we can see in ourselves. For instance, we, we see in ourselves the changing nature, the impermanence of the breath. Well, in a leaf we can see birth, decay, and death. There are brown edges. It may have a small new bud on it. We can see the changing nature. We can also dissect it in, to its different parts and see that it also consists of many aspects, many factors. We call it leaf, but there are many factors which make it leaf. 
just like we are consisting of many aspects. And we can see the elements. And again, we can refer from the elements of that natural um, object we will be looked at in nature uh, to ourselves. So we have all those three possibilities of um, impermanence, um, the analysis of parts, and the elements externally and internally. And it helps us also to lose some of this idea that we are the epitome of creation. We're nothing of the sort, we're part of it, but we're certainly not the um, crown of it. It's also one of the human foibles that most people have sort of imbued with uh, mother's milk. That's not something that we think of particularly, it's just something that, we, uh, that comes naturally to us. But it says that in the Bible. Yes. Well, it says so. And uh, which is one of the reasons why uh, mankind has um, made it a, a great, have made a great effort to subdue nature and to be master of it. And the result has been pretty disastrous, as we now can see. But we still haven't stopped because we do not feel ourselves part of it and uh, the same but in charge of it which is quite untrue in fact if we were to look at it correctly we would see that nature is very often in charge of us there's nothing we can do about a flood it just carries everything in front of it and we can be carried away with it quite easily same with cyclones and things like that so um, it's these are uh, useful um, inside meditation possibilities, those three outside and inside of oneself. And again, the uh, as the fourth one, this um, the death one, which we can also see. Uh, maybe we can find a little dead animal somewhere and uh, see a live one and a dead one. And maybe we can even see. Sometimes it's possible in the forest to see a bunch of ants carrying away a little dead animal and eating away at it and taking it apart. And we can refer from that to ourselves. It's uh, quite, this is much easier to find here than charnel ground with human remains. But all these are helping us to see ourselves in a different light, get a different perspective. When we get a different perspective on ourselves, the old perspective, in the end, looks um, childish and uh, even uh, absurd. And we can realize that the old perspective that we had on ourselves has created nothing but problems. Because here we get a universal way of looking at it. And this is why the Buddha is recommending people. Now we come to feelings, contemplation of feelings. And here we find a very difficult translation, which I shall simplify for you. 
And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating feelings as feelings? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, a bhikkhu understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling a painful feeling, he understands, I feel a painful feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Now, very often we say neutral to that, neither painful nor pleasant, it's neutral. However, it takes a fair bit of mindfulness to become aware of neutral feelings. Because usually when there is neutrality, we don't pay attention. It's very important to become as much aware of our feelings as possible. Although feelings here only occupy a half a page, they are actually the basis for our life. We live according to our feelings. We don't live according to our thinking. Although we think we do, we don't. And the more we are in touch and understanding our own feelings, the more we understand everything within and without. Now, neither painful nor pleasant can be called neutral. It's very difficult to recognize, but we often consider it pleasant because at least it isn't painful. So we are mostly concerned with pleasant and painful. Now here we have come to the second base of mindfulness considering feelings. And here we have a translation which is not going to help us much. It's, going to call, it's called materialistic, and the other one is called unmaterialistic. And believe it or not, that means sensations and emotions. Unfortunately, in Pali, the words are this, materialistic and unmaterialistic, but it definitely means sensations and emotions. Whereas the materialistic feelings are sensations and the unmaterialistic are the emotions. And these are the two things that we are concerned with. Now let's say you're very mindful of your walking. You're going to take, you're going to take a walk on the uh, property, walk along a pathway here, and you're very mindfully walking. And as you're mindfully walking along, the mindfulness isn't quite good enough and you bump against a big stone. Well, obviously, immediately, the mind goes to the unpleasant feeling which has arisen. If the mind now is totally mindful of that unpleasant feeling, there doesn't have to be a reaction. But that is the practice. That's not automatic. That's not easy. That's the practice. So when you bump against the stone and get this unpleasant sensation, the normal and natural thing for the mind to do is, oh, that hurts. Oh, what a stupid thing to do. I'm going to take this stone away. Somebody else is going to run into it. Oh, I've got to sit down. I can't keep walking. It really hurts. I mean, there'll be a whole gamut of ideas that arise. and. Um, natural, normal, okay? But within that naturalness and normality that we find ourselves, we're not going to become liberated. That's going to keep us in our natural and normal human way. Liberation 
is um, very um, is very possible at this point if we can continue it. Now, once having done it, we know what it is. Having bumped ourselves against a stone, and we are totally attentive to the unpleasant feeling, and not allowing the mind to make any have any reaction or make any comment. It's not an easy thing to do, and the more often we try, the easier it becomes. It means that we have really become mindful, totally attentive to that which is happening. The reaction to the mental formation, which we will talk about later, that's contemplation of mind. Now, with an unpleasant feeling like that, we actually can practice that in the meditation, in the sitting. We get an unpleasant feeling in the sitting posture, and we are only aware of the unpleasantness of the, of the sensation without reacting to it. We can stay in that same position if we are paying attention, really paying attention. Now, obviously, we can do that for a little while. And the more often we can do it, the easier it becomes also in daily living. The non-reaction to the unpleasant feeling. Obviously, that also applies to the pleasant feeling. Now, the pleasant feeling is one here when we talk about sensation. It will be one of touch contact, which will be sensation. So. Um, Stroking is a pleasant feeling, it's a pleasant sensation, right? If we are just concerned, just totally attentive to that pleasant feeling, we need not react with, I like it, I like to continue it, I like to get it again. If we ever manage once, we will know the difference between being a victim to our reactions and being able to choose them. When we learn to choose them, life becomes easy. When we are a victim, when we react willy-nilly without having any choice, we are constantly at the back and call of our own sensations and emotions. This is what absolute mindfulness of feeling means. And again, as I said once before, we have to use a base of mindfulness here, which is appropriate. In other words, when you're walking along, you can be mindful of the walking, but if you bump your foot against the stone, obviously you have to be mindful of the sensation. The same goes, for instance, if you're walking along and you're looking at a tree, or let's say at a tree fern. You can be quite mindful of looking, which will be much easier than being mindful of walking and trying to pretend the tree fern isn't there, because the mind has already noted it and said, ah, oh, tree fern. And then the mind says, hey, I'm supposed to be walking. I mean, there's much too much um, diffuseness. So instead of continuing being mindful of the steps that one is taking, the mindfulness then reverts to the looking. And as we revert to the looking, we can become aware that 
that sense contact of looking creates feeling. And if we then become aware of the pleasant feeling that the tree fern has um, helped to arise, has made arise, that seeing that tree fern has uh, brought about a pleasant feeling, and we can stop the mind from going any further, but just pleasant feeling, we have exactly the same situation of non-reaction. Not easy to do, but worth trying. Same goes for colored birds, yes? The perception, the perception says tree, uh, says tree fern, gives it a name. That's the next one, after the feeling. Um, the, the looking is the first thing, the sense contact. And the next one after that is the feeling, the feeling that arises. Um, even if you go as far as tree fern, that's still all right. But when then comes the, the mind reaction, which says, very nice, very pretty, you wish I'd live in the forest. What is it called? Ah, yes, tree fern, native to Australia. But I've seen them in New Zealand. I wonder whether they're native there too. My cousin has written, and so on and so forth. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so uh, um, that is then the, uh, the whole reaction, uh, the chain of reaction. But absolute mindfulness of feeling stays with that pleasant feeling which has arisen. And it's a practice, very useful, extremely helpful practice. Because in our daily lives, we are constantly reacting to our feelings, all the time. They're either the, uh, the pleasant sensation, or the unpleasant sensation, or the pleasant emotion, or the unpleasant emotion. So if we can hear where we have quiet and peace and time, actually <coughs> practice their mindfulness on feeling. We will have a very, very valuable tool in everyday life. And again, when you see this paragraph, remember materialistic sensation, unmaterialistic emotion. Um, when feeling a sensation, a pleasant sensation, he understands, I feel a pleasant sensation. When feeling an unpleasant sensation, he understands, oh no, it's an emotion. When feeling a pleasant emotion, he understands, I feel a pleasant emotion. It's really amazing how anybody could understand that with those words. <laughs> anyway. When feeling a, a painful sensation, he understands, I feel a painful sensation. When feeling a painful emotion, he understands, I feel a painful emotion. And when feeling neutral ones, the same, he understands. In other words, you stay with the feeling. Yeah? And emotion is our strongest base for our reactions in life. So when we see, for instance, there may be um, boredom, anger, upset, anxiety, fear arising, it may not be quite enough to say these are all unpleasant, huh? to say this is an unpleasant emotion. We may have to go that next step to say, aha, 
anger arising, which is the perception step, the naming of it. That's the naming of it. It is unpleasant. That's the first thing. But it has also a name, which we give it. And um, we may give it any name. It doesn't matter, whichever we perceive it to be. And if we can stay with that and not fall into the error to become it, we have conquered that particular difficulty of being a slave to these emotions. We will also see very easily, which is very important also, that they arise and cease. Same insight, arising and ceasing. What has arisen must cease. Can't stay around. It also, also uh, applies, of course, here. And now, for instance, if we have an unpleasant emotion which is bothering us and uh, keeping us from meditating, if we keep really focused on the unpleasantness of it, we will eventually come to the understanding that we do not have to make our lives difficult voluntarily. We can drop it. If we don't understand that, eventually, we'll never be our own best friend. That's what it means to be one's own best friend. If there is a difficulty, an unpleasant emotion, and whatever name it may have, anxiety, worry, fear, um, upset, um, anger, jealousy, envy, um, any, any name you like to give it, we can see from it that it must eventually cease, and if we don't help it along, we're not our own best friend. The arising and ceasing of it can be seen in a different way also. It can be seen in the way that if we are very mindful, we will notice that it is not constant. It's, it is a matter of coming together and falling apart. Although we may think that this unpleasant thing is with us all the time, it isn't. It has the um, faculty of coming together and falling apart like everything in the universe. But that takes a strong mindfulness. But to realize that everything that has arisen must cease and that we want to be our own best friend and therefore help the ceasing of the unpleasantness along, that can be seen uh, quite clearly. Now, feeling, of course, does not have the uh, factors of the elements because the elements are strictly corporal strictly concerned with everything that's body. Um, it does have the factor of the um, separate parts. This is what I've just been explaining. Because nothing in the whole of the universe is solid. Feeling isn't either. So the solidity, the lack of solidity, means that it consists of groups that are coming together and falling apart. That's why they are also called, feeling is one of the khandas, one of those aggregates, which are called groups. Now that takes a strong mindfulness to realize that. To see that the feeling is not something that is really solid and there all the time, 
in a like in a continuous uh, row, nothing like that. It appears to be like that, but if it was continuous, and it isn't like that at all. It is a, a constantly contracting and expanding, contracting and expanding, like the universe itself. Now that kind of impermanence seen in oneself again helps one to realize one's own transparency and lack of solidity. In the dependent origination, which is the, uh, the explanation of the Buddha of cause and effect, and uh, one could say essential to the understanding of the Dhamma, the whole circle of factors arise automatically until we come to feeling. The next one after feeling, the next factor, which is the uh, effect, cause is feeling, the effect of that is craving. Now, craving means wanting to have and wanting to get rid of. Pleasant feelings we want to have, unpleasant ones we want to get rid of. This is the only point in the whole depend origination where we have a chance to step out of the continuous circle of birth and death. When we do not react to the pleasant feeling with wanting and to the unpleasant feeling with wanting to get rid of but just stay with the attention to feeling. This is why this is important here. Is that clear? Are there any questions on this? Just one question about, uh, you said that the attention is on feeling. It may be, say, when one is sitting, and the neighbor just comes through the body, and it may seem uh, unusually acute at a particular time, and one is watching it. You said that the Oh no, it's constantly changing. It is constantly changing whether you observe it or not. But when you observe it, you become aware of it. When you are very mindfully observing a sensation, in this case an unpleasant sensation, you can become aware of the fact that it's, uh, it has constant movement in it. And if you observe it long enough, it will also, uh, strangely enough, disappear. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you've got enough patience to wait for that. <laughs> Yeah. When you talk about dependent origination, are you are you talking about the series that that, that you were talking about before? Um, where before when? Well, when we were talking about reaction. Uh, no, 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 not at all. Uh, depend no, it's something entirely different. Dependent origination 
You see, we have terminology, unfortunately, in the Buddha's teaching, which denotes something specific, right? Although what you're saying is also cause and effect, you're quite right. This dependent origination is a particular teaching of the Buddha. And it starts out with ignorance and ends with death. And there is a point in the middle somewhere where it says feeling arising from sense contact, right? And the next step is craving. But what you are referring to there is also cause and effect that the sense contact, I think that's what you're referring to, sense yes. contact brings the feeling, the feeling perception, perception mental feeling. Yes. That's the part, that's the part I visit. Yes. 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 The craving is the craving to The craving at that point is not craving to be, this is the craving to have the uh, um, sensual gratification. We have three cravings, craving to be, craving for sensual gratification, and craving not to be. Now craving not to be goes hand in hand with craving to be, and so there's the second one, craving for sensual gratification. And this is getting rid of unpleasant and getting pleasant. So it's that craving, which is... Uh, uh, if we have passed up, if we have passed that point of no return, when the feeling has made us react, then we go the whole circle over and over and over. That is the point where we can step out. And that's why we need to practice that point. Yes, yes. Just one more question. Sometimes, obviously, one doesn't need to act. How does one determine which one, what we've been doing objective action and staying and observing the feeling and not reacting? Well, the feeling would have to be hunger, wouldn't it? Oh, I mean, that would be something strong enough. It's a sensation. Yeah. So if the sensation of hunger arises, the unpleasant, it's an unpleasant um, a feeling, and from that unpleasant feeling comes the uh, reaction, I want to get rid of it. And the way to get rid of it is to go and get myself an apple. If you're observing this, you're observing that the uh, uh, hunger has arisen. You can also observe that something arises before you know that it's hunger. Before you know that it's hunger, it's an unpleasant feeling. Before the unpleasant feeling, there's actually a touch contact. You can feel it contact within the stomach, in this area here. There's a contact. Okay, that it's unpleasant. Now unpleasant, perception says hunger. Then reaction, I've got to go and get something. So mind says go. So you can watch how the five aggregates work together, and you can watch how the mind 
produces the orders for the body. The five aggregates, meaning that you first have the contact, then your feeling, then the perception. Hunger is a perception, name, and then the reaction. Right. Mm. So it's obviously beneficial to watch your words. But we were also saying it's beneficial not to um, necessarily react, react to the feeling, to just observe the fe- just observe the feeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, then that may dissolve the, the need to react. Yes. And that has actually broken um, a circle of Mm-hmm. Right. So what I'm really getting at is, is when, I mean, if one is to the limit, one would merely sit in one position and watch the whole thing until the body, you know, peeled over and died, mm-hmm. watching all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Been done. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is where, you know, where's the, the middle path? Well, the middle path is that at one time you may be able to watch the hunger and say, well, I'm not going to react to it, just let it pass, and you will notice that it passes very quickly. And at other times you might, you might be able to make the choice and say, all right, well, I'm going to have this apple. As long as you can make a choice and not have the, um, uh, be dependent, yes, when you can make choices, it's fine, you know. And uh, there are times when you can practice more strongly, where you can let go of those feelings. And other times, well, you know, you might have to go along with them, because there are other things of more priority at that time. You know, so um, there have been monks at the time of the Buddha that we know about, who um, just stayed in the monastery and um, waited for this body to, you know over and die. I mean, not that they didn't eat. And that's not so. Um, they certainly did, but just the bare minimum. Not so much done these days, I suppose. What are you saying there? Um, that they they just watched the body dissolve, or they they made a choice to. Well, no. What what is known about? Uh, um, a few of them amongst is this, uh, particularly one who was Sariputta's um, teacher. Um, it's a fact that uh, they were enlightened, and uh, so they didn't go to any, um, they didn't do any activities. They um, decided that the only thing to do was just be, as long as it was necessary. You know, the um, some of them didn't even teach. It was just because being enlightened, you realize that uh, you're no different from that tree out there. So what's there to do? Being nobody going nowhere. And that's what they actually practiced. Because they could, because they actually were nobody. But uh, I might not, we might not have quite got to that point yet. Anything <laughs> 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 else? All right, now we have again the same um, um, a little paragraph about the insight. I'll read it. In this way he abides, contemplating feelings as feelings in himself, or he abides contemplating feelings as feelings externally. Now here's a footnote, 
I'm not sure whether it's by the translator or not, he infers the feelings in others. This is only for reflections, and insight can only practice on the arriving falling of feelings in himself. Uh, feelings as feelings internally, of course, we know all about that. Um, the thing about externally is the fact that when we are very much in tune with our own emotional feelings, we can very easily know what's going on in other people, particularly if we are in tune with our own dukkha. Dukkha is everything that's unsatisfactory, suffering, uh, pain, grief, and lamentation, everything that's unsatisfactory. Um, we know for a fact, maybe you could say we know through inference, that others have the same. So the more we are in tune with ourselves, the more we can be in tune with others. And there we do have that reflection possibilities on feelings externally because of the fact that um, we realize that others are no different from ourselves. Or, or he abides contemplating feelings as feelings in himself and externally. So that would be uh, probably what one would do, you know, probably in oneself and also sometimes externally. Or else he abides contemplating in feeling its arising factor or its vanishing factor. Coming and going, uh, arising and ceasing. Arising and vanishing factor. Or else the mindfulness that there is feeling is simply established in him to the extent of bare knowledge and remembrance of it, while he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Well, here we have exactly the same point about feeling as we had about body. When we become very mindful, really attentive to feeling, and particularly to emotion, and see that it arises and ceases, we no longer need to own it. And if we don't own it, we certainly don't have to react. It just is, we could call it a mood. We could call it like a, like a cloud. Clouds in the sky, they come and go. We don't own them. We don't care at all whether they come or go. They come or go because they obey a natural law. Just like ebb and tide, they come and go in the natural law. The same with our emotions. They obey a natural law of coming and going. And as long as we own them, of course, we are upset by them, we are depressed by them, we have to react to them, we've got to do something about them, we've got to go from here to India to find something, some cure for them. I'm just using India because I'm talking about India. <laughs> but that's only because we own them. As long as, as soon as we don't own them anymore, they come and go, like night and day. So the, the mindfulness of the arising and ceasing of the emotion is a, I can't stress that enough. It, I would like to say that this is a, a possibly the most important insight that we can gain in order to um, gain a foothold in um, equanimity and equilibrium in ourselves. And actually, it again uh, reduces our ego illusion uh, to some extent. Huh? The less we own of this business here that we call me, the less of that ego illusion we have. Huh? 
So this is that there is feeling, huh? that's, that's part of this particular paragraph here. Okay, now that's the end of feeling. Any question about feeling? Sensation in one way and feeling in the other. Emotion, huh? Any, any question? Anything? Now, obviously, all that the Buddha explains here and that I'm trying to uh, elaborate on is for practicing it. So I want you to be very sure, very clear, how you're going to do it. That's really all that matters. Because the particular uh, insight that the Buddha has come to will only come to each one of us when we practice this. So the main aspect is, how am I going to do this? How can I gain that particular insight for myself? If they're clear on that, that's fine. That's what I'm concerned. All quite totally, utterly clear. Any? I think I was being caught sometimes wanting to be mindful of a feeling in order for it to go away. <laughs> Wanting to be mindful. Are you now talking about emotional sensation? Uh, emotion. emotion. Wanting to be mindful of the emotion in order for it to go away. But it does work. Why doesn't it? Are they wanting it to go away? Yeah, then you're not mindful. But if you want to be mindful of it, that will work, right? To, to stay with it, right? Because you know in the back of your mind that if you are attentive to it, you will see it vanishing. That will work. Ah, yeah, then it does. Because you, you're saying to it, go away, go away, go away. That's not being mindful. That's talking to it and being reactive to it. That's right, yes. But if you were, in the back of your mind, you're, you are... I'm now going to be mindful because I know this is not, uh, you know, the right way to deal with it. I've got to be mindful, and then it will. Then that will be fine. Yes. You see this emotion. You say, okay. Actually, it works so fast. It's um, miraculous. You just by being objectively mindful of an emotion, particularly unpleasant one, of course because the others, the pleasant ones, it's very difficult to say, I want it to go away, you know. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the unpleasant one, and you become really mindful of it, it dissolves. Disappears. So knowing that can be your incentive. That's okay. But then you have to be strictly, of course, attentive. First you have the intention, then you let go of that and do it. Okay, all perfectly clear? It's going to be all...